Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder, a repeated founder. Uh, he's doing some really, really interesting stuff and we're going to be learning about it, building, scaling, financing, all the good stuff that we like to hear. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Greg Suits. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So originally born in LA, give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? <laughs> Uh, well, I now live in New York, so it's very different from L.A., where there's always sunshine and everything closes early. Nobody, you know, there's a lot of drinking involved, but I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't swap New York for, for any other city. And we have actually very intentionally chose to, I guess, build two companies in, in New York. I think there's just a big opportunity here for CPG and, and startups in general. But I loved growing up in L.A. And, and out of all things, what got you into neuroscience? Well, I went. I, yeah, in college, I studied neuroscience and English. Actually, two sort of weirdly unrelated majors. Uh, I always my mom's a my mom's a therapist, so maybe that played some role in it. Um, but I always really loved neuroscience. I thought I would go into neuroscience, probably into academia or something. Never thought I'd start my own company, actually. Um, but one thing led to another, and I met my co-founder in college, and. Things just snowballed very quickly as we were approaching graduation on our first business. And then now uh, here I am with, with my second business. So, And we'll talk about the second business in just a little bit. But let's say, let's double click on that. So you meet your co-founder and then you were saying that things snowballed towards saying building your first company, EXO. So uh, how was that process like of you guys brainstorming and, and thinking about a future where you would bring a solution to it and, and the problem that you thought it was meaningful enough for you guys to take action? So how was that? journey or that the ideation to bringing it to life, you know, kind of uh, journey. Gabby, uh, he's from Scotland, actually, and he um, was studying economics. So he um, was more interested always in having his own business. He was very involved in startup groups at uh, Brown, where he went to college. And um, he was originally planning to join a hedge fund or go into banking some sort of more traditional finance route, but he, he was always noodling on different ideas and he was really into fitness. Uh, CrossFit was really big at the time when we were in college and the paleo diet was really big when we were in college. So he was sort of deep in those communities. He was working on his own protein bar that he, he just had started making for himself, but then actually was taking around to various gyms around Providence that he would go work out at and different farmers markets. and. He sort of thought there might be a business there. This was before RX Bar and a bunch of other uh, bars that kind of also were going after similar groups. But um, he, he kind of wasn't convinced that he, it, you know, it was really, to your point, interesting enough to commit his life to and pass up a lucrative job in finance. Uh, and I actually was at a conference um, somewhat related to neuroscience, um, just a science conference. And somebody there, there was a big panel about edible insects because the United Nations had a large edible insect research initiative going and somebody was presenting on it. And I kind of came back, we were sitting, we were roommates, we were sitting around and we 
I don't know, I honestly remember the exact light bulb moment, but there really was a kitchen table moment where we thought, why don't we take your protein bar recipe and see if you can basically taste any difference if we were to put crickets, which were the sort of most um, scaled up farmed version that you could get in the US, at least in Canada at the time. Uh, and they're super high in protein. They require far fewer resources to raise than equivalent protein from cows or or pigs or chickens. So there was a big movement around at the time, lots of excitement. And uh, we moved to New York. We had these samples. We raised a bit of money. Um, and we ran EXO, it was called, for three, four, five years. Um, eventually realized that there was a two-sided problem. We needed to obviously build demand for Americans to get comfortable eating insects, but also as the demand grew, we needed to scale up the cricket farming side of it. And so it actually took us to Thailand to look at cricket farms there, to Canada, all over the world. We eventually realized that this was going to be a longer time horizon than we initially wanted, um, just to, to fully get the cost parity to be competitive and then obviously from a consumer point of view make make the case much stronger uh and so we ended up basically exiting that business to a large cricket farming operation um and then starting magic spoon after that so you were saying that uh, you learned you know about some of those challenges about you know adoption you know education and 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 also how you go about innovation so i think that what is the biggest lesson that you got from innovating in in you know, with all these different things going on? It was interesting to try. And, you know, you, you at least for us, we, our first business, we didn't quite know what we were doing. We were, we were 22, 23, figuring it out. I mean, as all first time founders are. And um, we were really motivated by the sustainability mission and just the marketing challenge and doing something so innovative of really trying to bring this new food group to the U.S. and think about the psychology of how to convince people to do it. Um, there was a, actually set my, the neuroscience background did come in handy to try and figure out like why, why insects were discussing to people, how you might get around that, like what arguments worked and what arguments didn't work. But in the end, it was a really hard challenge. And in a lot of ways, it was like pushing a, a heavy rock up a, a steep hill. And we were still super excited about it. And when we kind of realized that it was just going to take longer to really get over that critical mass um, and cross the chasm from sort of innovative and niche to mainstream, we started thinking about, well, we spent a few years now really, you know, taking something super innovative and trying to convince like a tiny sliver of people to try it, then the next sliver, then the next sliver, then the next sliver. And what would the opposite challenge be? And so we sort of hit on this idea of, well, it, you know, even if it's like, quote, unquote, less innovative, maybe to take a super mainstream product and make it make it healthier, rethink it, but I'll, uh, still, you know, it's not like putting crickets in it, i.e. cereal, there actually could be net more innovation just by reaching such a larger audience much faster. And so we started thinking about, well, what's what are what are products that if you were to stop anybody in the street, they probably would already have had in their house or you know, felt super positively about had, had eaten recently. And there aren't that many food products, at least out there that that's true for. And so we really tried to look at some of the very, very large categories and see whether we could actually bring some innovation to those 
um, and just have the challenge be how you know we're scaling something really fast versus having something be so innovative that it could only scale incrementally at a time. And so that's how we we came to Magic Spoon. So before Magic Spoon, I mean, with EXO, obviously you guys ended up uh, selling the business. What was that journey like of uh, going through a transaction and now, you know, seeing the full cycle of a, of a company? It was definitely bittersweet. You know, you put so much time and energy into building a brand and, you know, the, we had a team that um, all moved on afterwards as well. And I, I, actually the brand is still around. I was in, uh, I was in Texas a couple months ago and happened to just see it uh, at a grocery store, but we're, we're not involved. And I think we were, there's, there's something about starting a new company that there's just so much energy and potential and excitement about that. I think you quickly, it just takes over your life again um, in one way or another. And so we really kind of dove head first into Magic Spoon. I would say as soon as we hit upon hit upon the kind of brand positioning and the idea, and actually managed to formulate a product that we felt was meaningfully different than anything else out on the market. I think it was um, just off to the races for us at that point. So why Magic Spoon? Why? Why did you guys think that it made sense? You know, this time around, because obviously, you know, with EXO you didn't achieve the outcome that you had hoped for. Still an outcome. You know, I think that an exit is always an exit. But why Magic Spoon? Why did you guys think that the, you know, the problem or what you have, you, what you had seen or what you could bring to market was meaningful enough for you guys to take another swing at the back? Gabby and I are both lifelong cereal eaters. So there was just the emotional connection. Um, I, I grew up with a pantry where we had 10 cereals at any given time. Um, and I had it every morning for breakfast. And I think there's a real, there's a real soft spot a lot of consumers have for those iconic brands, especially people our age, you know, I don't know, 20 to 40, let's say, but, but really they touch, they touch kids, they touch people who are in their you know, 50s, 60s. And a lot of these brands have been iconic since the, since literally the 1950s and 1960s. Um, with the Kellogg's and, and General Mills of the world. So we were really excited about the idea of trying to update, you know, take everything that people really feel connected to and love about those original brands, uh, the the sort of fun and joyfulness and flavor profiles, but update it for a modern consumer and it create a new, sort of a new but iconic brand. And that's sort of how we were thinking about it. It, it needs to feel like it's channeling all the original classic cereals, but also feel like it's really a category shift in the product and how we're talking about health and ingredients. Um, and for us, we'd seen a lot of um, these sort of niche diets like paleo and keto explode, um, whole influencer and online communities grow around them. And we knew that if we could create a product that really checked the boxes for a lot of those different groups. We didn't want to hang our hat on any one particular one necessarily, but we really tried to make a product that any single person would be excited about eating, no matter what diet you followed or no matter what products or sort of food you, you couldn't eat. And and with cereal, especially, I mean, obviously it's, you know, a lot of kids eat it, um, but most people eat it for breakfast. And you really ideally don't want a bunch of sugar and carbs first thing in the morning. And, and they it just, there hadn't been any update to the category that kind of 
channeled a lot of modern nutritional thinking uh, into into the aisle in the way you've seen in other large categories like juice and soda and alternative dairy and yogurts and things like that. And so we set about trying to essentially replace all of the grains, the wheats and corns um, with protein. And at the time as well, there was a new um, sugar called allulose that was just being commercialized at very large scales. So our timing was really fortuitous because that allowed us to get pretty close to the taste of classic cereals. But allulose, um, because of the shape of the molecule, doesn't get processed in the body like regular sugar. So it doesn't have to be, it doesn't go on the nutritional fact panel as grams of sugar. And so that was a big unlock as well towards us getting close to the taste and texture of classic cereals, but with a vastly different nutritional profile. And I think once we hit on that and we had the positioning of, you know, it feels and looks like a classic cereal, but is healthier than the quote unquote healthier cereals, we knew that we really, we would, we were very confident in our product market fit. Childlike cereal for grownups. So very interesting stuff here, what we're talking about. Now, how did you guys go about financing the operation? Because this was the second go around, you know, with a different company. Uh, and I'm sure that you also learned a bit, you know, from dealing with investors. So how much capital have you guys raised to date? Uh, well, yeah, I'll, I can start at the beginning. So basically, we when we when we had the really just the idea for Magic Spoon, it wasn't even called Magic Spoon at the time. We emailed a couple of our earliest investors from EXO, um, some key advisors. So like Collaborative Fund, for example, and a few others. Uh, we said, hey, guys, we have this new idea. We're really excited about it. Here's all the reasons why we think it's a really large opportunity. Um, this is the rough product that we are developing. And essentially, based on that email and based on the relationship with Gabby and I, Collaborative Fund wrote us our first check on a convertible note or a save. So really easy. I think we raised about 500K or to a million dollars to really get the the product um, developed. And they're actually the one of the downsides of cereal is that there's a lot of investment that is required to to produce it. it you can't really produce it at a small scale. So even the formulation trials and things like that, it actually required quite a bit of cash. So there was some startup costs involved. And then we did all the branding, we got the launch. Um, and immediately we just like, we were selling way more than we'd even planned in our most aggressive stretch forecasts. And so we went out and um, raised a uh, seed round from Lightspeed. I think um, it was maybe five five or six million dollars. And then um, just over time, we've, we've raised a couple more growth grounds. Most recently, we raised um, from High Post Capital, which is an uh, of, of sort of middle market fund based in New York City as well. Uh, so to date, we have raised, um, honestly, probably close to $100 million uh, for various purposes. Uh, and we're fairly late stage. So some of it's gone out, gone to kind of buying out the earliest investors, some of it's gone into new product development, some of it goes into a lot of it goes into inventory. And as we've scaled, we recently launched in Seven or eight thousand national retailers this past year, which is obviously also very capital intensive, and we really wanted to make sure we did it right. Um, and so we've been very fortunate in our in our ability to fundraise because we've just had that product market fit from the very beginning. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that 
you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. Product market fit. You know, when you're wondering if you have it or not, you probably don't, right? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, true, I, yeah. I guess for you guys, you know, it's what you were saying where it, you just you were just selling more than what you had hoped for and that you couldn't keep up with the with the demand. Uh, now, when you went out to market, I mean, were there any tests or anything? I mean, you were you were talking about it that you needed some cash there to be able to do the trials and that it took a little bit more money than expected. But how did you go about doing those tests and everything to make sure that you got it right? We launched entirely direct to consumers. So we were able to do we didn't we didn't do a ton of fully pre-launch pre-idea testing but once we had the rough parameters of what we thought the product could be just based on formulation and what tasted the best um we kind of put together a lot of different landing pages and at the time at least um it was very easy and pretty cheap to rapidly test a ton of different ad formats and value propositions and audiences on Facebook and Instagram, driving to different landing pages that were kind of highlighting different parts of the product or parts of the brand and see what worked. So we were able to really zero in on which which reasons to believe were motivating to people and which consumer groups were most likely to be our early adopters. Um, and from there, we then kind of just leaned in and over time and broadened and broadened and broadened essentially to a more mainstream customer. I think there have been a lot of changes to the e-commerce and D2C industries the past couple of years. And I would I think it's much harder today to, to be able to do that on a kind of pre-launch budget, let's call it. But we were lucky in that we were able to get a lot of insights uh, early by being direct to consumer. And how are say how were some of those issues that you saw on on finding the right channels? Because on the direct to consumer also, uh, there has been some challenges too with the new tracking uh, changes with iOS and and things like that. So, 
how does that work? You know, about adapting, you know, and and finding the right channels to 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 take this to to the right people. It was definitely a key strategic question for us of when do we go to brick and mortar retail? Because from the start, we knew that we wanted to be everywhere that cereal is sold one day. So obviously, the vast, vast, vast majority of cereal is sold through grocery stores. And so it was always in our plan to be in those stores. I think it was an open question for us, given our premium pricing. Um, we're about we're about two or three times as expensive as sort of an iconic classic cereal. Um, whether the consumer at like that most mainstream of retailers, let's call it like a Walmart or something, would would support that price point and and how long and how much marketing we'd have to do to really like build the awareness to do that. And so we held off for as long as we could. And luckily the business was growing so quickly in the early years, just based on our uh, owned web channel that we, we were able to get our supply chain in a row. We were able to really like work out a lot of kinks to then get ready for retail. And then the timing worked out fairly nicely in that when a lot of the iOS changes came through and a lot of that, to your point, ad tracking got scrambled and all the, the rates started going up and there was just kind of chaos in the e-commerce marketplace. We'd already been planning to really diversify the sales channel mix into more of an omni-channel world, essentially. And so we were able to launch in Target last year. And now we're in Walmart and Kroger and um, Albertsons. And, and sprouts a bunch of different stores, and so luckily our business is very diversified now. But we we definitely saw a, a much more challenging environment on the direct to consumer side once all those changes started to go through. And talking to lots of other brands in the space, I think it's industry wide and just a, a big existential question for online e commerce channels like the Facebooks and Googles of the world, like how they're going to help support businesses and work around all these changes because. They're, they're working on it for sure. And I think it, it still has a big role to play. I mean, quite a, a large part of our business is still online direct to consumer, but um, we now are, are very much omni-channel. Now, in this case, for you guys, Magic Spoon, for the people that are listening, to be able to get an idea on the scope and size. I mean, anything that you can share on how big you guys are, number of employees, anything else that you feel comfortable sharing? Sure. Unfortunately, we don't disclose revenue size or anything like that. We are in, we are in almost 8,000 retail stores. Uh, the company is about 50 people right now in terms of employees. Um, and we're continuing to grow incredibly quickly. And for us, this, this next period is sort of a maturation and execution period where we've launched into these major retailers. We're really trying to go deep with them and build really strong partnerships. And all, again, work in service to that goal of being everywhere that cereal is sold. And wanting to give people who are customers of those classic cereals, which we all know and love, a reason to buy Magic Spoon, which is, you know, hopefully tastes almost as good, but we feel has a place to play in their diets as maybe a healthier option. And also people that have left the cereal category who maybe eat Greek yogurt for breakfast or protein bars or something like that, um, a reason a reason to come back. And I mean, you were talking about the, I mean, we've been talking about the direct to consumer changes, how to adapt, how you guys have now this distribution on all these different retailers. So what have you learned? You know, I'm sure that there's a lot of people that are listening to that. I'm like, oh my God, you know, I'm dealing with those issues too. You know, those Facebook ads not working. And, you know, I wonder if there's a different way, a different approach. 
What have you learned around building that network? I mean, that distribution. I mean, being in 8,000 retailers is, is, is a lot. So how did you go about that? It was definitely a challenge. We had to we had to really reorient the whole business, I would say, because everything was built to be direct to consumer. So our logistics operation was all kind of small parcel pick and pack. Um, we were in many different warehouses around the country to reduce shipping times, and we were working primarily with the UPSs and FedExes of the world. Um, and our you know our demand planning and everything was based around really tight feedback loops of being able to make product and then sell it really quickly and re and react to changes in demand or limited edition flavors and things like that super quickly. Whereas with retailers, I mean, you're working, I don't know, six, 12 months in advance a lot of the time to plan around launches and get all the paperwork. And, you know, we have to produce it. Then it has to go to a staging warehouse and it has to go to a distribution center. Then it gets to the retailers. And so it's just a totally different way about th of thinking about operations and finance and um, production and even, you know, obviously the sales is a big component too. We were lucky in that we have a very well-known brand at this point. So we were able to work with the retailers and they were really excited about us coming to retail. And we were super excited about going deep with a few of them. And so it, it has been relatively knock on wood um, smooth so far on execution. I think yes, to your point, given how many doors we've launched into, but Definitely, it took a real reorientation, and there were some real learning curves to figure out. I would say um, people, the people on the team with experience from prior roles of companies that were in retail or omnichannel, played a really big part in kind of helping to coach everyone and and kind of stay flexible. But um, there is, I would say, you know, it's there's no new reinventing of the wheel. There is a playbook for how you execute working with these with these retailers, and so it's. I think about just finding people who can help you implement that playbook and then just having a really solid team that can, can execute and stay flexible to kind of change processes to adapt. Got it. Now, imagine if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Magic Spoon is fully realized. What does that world look like? It's a great question. I think for us, again, it's really... It's really trying to tap into that nostalgia and enthusiasm that people have towards cereal as a product and um, all the brands that we grew up knowing and loving. So for us, a magic spoon could be thought of in that same group as the cinnamon toast crunches and the captain crunches and the frosted flakes and things like that, that, you know, you mentioned to people and their face just lights up. I mean, we're all fans of those brands too. So we're not, you know, we're not trying to necessarily like put them down or anything for us we're trying to build a modern 2.0 cereal brand that uh is as large as those iconic cereal brands in terms of awareness and also size and scale so again we're trying to be everywhere that cereal is sold and if i were to wake up tomorrow and have our cereal boxes next to every box of cinnamon toast crunch in the world that would be amazing that's what we're trying to build towards that's so cool now imagine if you were to have the opportunity of getting into a time machine and you go back in time and you go back in time to that moment where maybe you were still in college, you were still in Brown and uh, you were there with your, with your co-founder and friend and you have the opportunity of having a chat with both of you guys and being able to give the two of you 
a piece of advice before launching a business? What would that be and why, given what you know now? Pick something that, if all goes according to plan, could get really big really fast. Because I think, to your point, product market fit and momentum and scale really solves most issues in one way or another. Um, and, and any new issues it creates are good problems to have, in a sense. They're all things that you can work on. I think the hardest thing is continuously trying to, you know, bang your head against the wall because you just don't have the demand or the interest essentially in what you're selling or what you're building to justify, you know, everyone's time and money. And it's obviously not black and white. I mean, there's been moments at Magic Spoon at EXO where, you know, you're on a rocket ship. There's also been moments where it felt like, damn, like what, you know, what it's not totally existential, but like what's going on here and like how do we fix it because we need to we need to fix it or else. Um, but I think just really being aware of the dynamics of the market and how if there's momentum at your back, like it really it really can take you very far. And so I would I would think about opportunities and and solutions and problems from from that perspective. Love it. For the people that are listening, Greg, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? I uh, feel free to to DM us on Instagram, Magic Spoon Serial, and uh, Twitter, and email us hello at magicspoon.com. We we answer every email that we get sent. Amazing. Well, hey, Greg, it has been an honor to have you with us today. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.